Very good. If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I wonder if you have ever heard of the seven deadly sins. Uh, Not the uh, manga cartoon on Netflix, uh, for those of you who are familiar with that, but the list of sins uh, that really characterize the struggle of Christians uh, for many, many years. Uh, This uh, list was uh, originally written by a Christian monk by the name of Evagrius Ponticus uh, in the fourth century. And when he originally wrote the list, it had eight sins on it. Uh, He wrote this in the the fourth century, I may have just said that. And and this was, uh, from his point of view, uh, the list of persistent sins that seem to just hound Christians uh, throughout their Christian life, things that people continually struggled with over and over and over. About 200 years later, Gregory the Great reduced the list from eight sins to seven sins. Aren't you thankful for that? Would you like to know what sin got marked off the list? Trust me, you don't want to know. And I don't want to tell you. It would just cause debate. But the list made it uh, 200 years later to seven sins. And it has become a very popular thing to preach and teach on. Though it's not in the Bible, might surprise you, each of these sins is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, But even Billy Graham wrote a book called Freedom from the Seven Deadly Sins. Do you know what they are? Pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, anger, and sloth. Now, the interesting thing about those sins is that they have not changed in 1,600 years. The things that Christians struggled with 16 centuries ago, the things that seem to plague them day in and day out are the same things that Christians struggle with today. If uh, you walk through that list and you just think about uh, the people you know, I think about some of the counseling appointments that I have, or even if you think about yourself, uh, you will recognize that many of those things are uh, just reoccurring themes in our lives, the seven deadly sins. I read this last week that between one half and two thirds of men in church struggle with pornography. That's the sin of lust, and it's a major factor uh, destroying marriages today. Uh, Many of us could not deny uh, the sin of gluttony if we tried to. Uh, Pride and anger uh, for many are daily battles. Greed and envy often drive us to do things that we know to be unwise and ungodly. And while we have developed very clever ways to hide it, to disguise it, sloth and laziness often keep us from serving in the church and serving other people the way we should serve the same seven deadly sins that they struggled with 1,600 years ago make up the most common persistent sins that Christians struggle with today. Uh, As I was thinking about this this last week, a hymn came to mind, Uh, Andre, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We sing that uh, fairly often, one of our favorite hymns, Streams of Mercy Never Ceasing. Uh, I love, though, how the third verse begins. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the God I love. And you know, that's true. We are prone to wonder. So what should we do about this? How, how do we overcome the seven deadly sins? How can we be obedient to what Peter said when he said, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul? What can we do? Well, in this message series, we've tried to answer that question. We've searched through scripture and we've looked for hope. We've learned that sanctification, which is the Bible word for change, that sanctification doesn't happen simply because we pray for it to happen. We don't overcome sin just because we pray and ask God to take sin out of our lives and then have a hands-off approach. We've learned that, that sanctification doesn't happen because we make big, bold promises. It doesn't happen because we say, I will never, ever do that again. And we say it and mean it with all of our might. That's not the way that real change happens. And we've learned that real change doesn't happen just because we try harder. So many people are trying harder, but there's no real change that's happening in their lives. We've learned in these six weeks from God's word that it begins with the truth that we are dead to sin. That when we have a relationship with God that not only has Christ destroyed the, the penalty of sin in our lives, but he has destroyed the authority of sin in our lives. And we have to embrace that fact, that's where it begins, that we are dead to sin. And then we learn that there is some value in these God-prescribed, Holy Spirit-empowered habits that the Bible says that God will work through those things and he, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, will change our lives. Now, today, I want to wrap up this series by looking at some warnings and some encouragements found in Hebrews chapter 13. This will be the final piece of the puzzle for how it is that we can overcome some of these persistent sins. So let's look together at this verse. The Bible says, encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. So I think there are three warnings that we see there that'll help us really to complete this this picture of how it is that we can overcome our persistent sins, the first thing we need to learn is that sin is a big, dangerous deal. Now, uh, oftentimes we, we just assume that, that sin's not really a problem for me. I mean, I don't commit terrible sins. I'm, I'm not in danger of going to jail. There's nothing scandalous in my, my life. We, we say those things and so we excuse ourselves. Uh, we, we think that my sins are so small and so insignificant, I don't need to struggle to overcome my sins because they're just not that bad. Or, or we'll, we'll say, my sins are culturally accepted. Everybody's doing the same things I'm doing. Nobody's pointing their finger at me, so they must be okay. Or we'll say, I am already a child of God. I have been saved. I have been forgiven. I don't have to worry about the guilt of my sin. And we don't take seriously all of these commands that we see in Scripture that we must work hard to overcome our sin. And all of that's because we don't appreciate just how dangerous it is. But look back at verse 13. He says, encourage each one daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened 
by sin's deception. Now, right there, there are two reasons why, why sin is such a big deal. The first reason is that sin deceives. Sin deceives. He talks about sin's de- deception. Sin is tricky. It, it never appears as it really is. We, we often think that we can manage sin, that we can control sin. And my sin is such, it, it is under control such that it's not going to really cause any problems in my life. But that's deception. Sin deceives us. What we think is true of the sin in our lives, how we think we have control over the sin in our lives, is just not true. Uh, Adrian Rogers, a uh, famous preacher of a generation ago, uh, and, and I, he, he, he said something many times, and I'm not sure if this was original to him, but I'll, I'll give him credit. Uh, he said, sin will always take you further than you wanted to go. Have you heard this before? Sin will always take you further than you wanted to go. It will always keep you longer than you planned to stay. And it will always cost you more than you planned to pay. Now, why is that? Well, right here, Hebrews 3.13, because sin deceives us. You know, we learned back in Romans 6 a few weeks ago that we are dead to sin. Sin doesn't have authority over us, but that doesn't mean that we are the master of sin. Sin's not the master of me, but neither am I the master of sin. And I can't control sin and limit sin and manage sin. I'm not that strong. I'm not that good. I'm not that wise. We can't control our sin. Sin will deceive us and sin uh, will destroy us. When we let sin, even if we call it an insignificant sin, we let sin in our lives and we don't wrestle with that sin, we have given the devil a foothold. And once he has a foothold in our lives, he'll look for ways to expand that, even if we don't realize it, even if it takes months or years or a generation, he'll use that sin to get further and further into our lives. Sin is deceptive. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor, I have a conversation that begins like this. Pastor, I never meant for this to turn into what it turned into, or I never thought this would lead to this. Or I never wanted my family to be impacted like this. Well, you know what? They're telling the truth. And that just testifies to the deceptive nature of sin. When sin gets a foothold and then three years from now, it takes us to a place that we never imagined that we would go and we are surprised. Well, that's Hebrews 3.13. You will be surprised where sin takes you. We have to be serious about sin. We have to recognize that sin is a big dangerous deal because it's going to take us somewhere that we never thought we would go and we'll be surprised and we'll have regret. That's the nature of sin. So the first reason it's a big deal is is that it deceives. The second reason it's a big deal is because every single day matters. So often we think, well, I have sin, but my plan is to take care of that sin next year. That'll be my New Year's resolution. Or, or, or that's a sin that I'm going to overcome when my kids leave the house. Or when I, when, when, I, when I grow up, when I become an adult, or when I'm retired, or when this or when that. We're always postponing, wrestling with our sin. But here in verse 13, he tells us that there's a danger in doing that because every day matters. Look back at verse 13. Encourage each other daily while it is still called today. Now he uses that 
word today or daily, he uses it twice. And he means two different things by it. When he says encourage each other daily, he's reminding us that we must battle with sin every single day. This isn't some event that we're going to get to in a year. This is something that if we're going to have success, we've got to battle every single day. We've looked at 1 Thessalonians, uh, is it first? No, 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7 a few times as we've gone through this series where the apostle Paul says to train yourself in godliness. Now, how do we train to do something? If you're going to run a marathon, if you're going to get better at your job, if you're going to do whatever it is that you want to do that requires some training, training doesn't just mean you make a decision. You don't just decide that you're going to be in shape. You don't just decide that you're going to be excellent at something. No, training means that you work on it every single day. That it may start with a decision, but training means that you struggle with it over and over and over. So here we've got to understand when he says that we need to daily do this, that we need to daily be in the battle with sin. If we're going to overcome sin, it's not going to be because some big event happens in our lives or some milestone is reached. It's going to be because we decide every day, daily, I'm going to deal with the sin. The other, the other usage of the word day here, he says, while it is still called today, that reminds us that this is urgent. Time is pressing. Why is, why is it so urgent that we deal with our sins? Well, some obvious reasons. The honor of the Lord deserves that we give this approach, that we give this urgency, I should say. So my life can't bring honor to the Lord like, it, like God wants it to bring honor to the Lord as long as I have sins that I'm not wrestling with in my life. And so there's some urgency for me to wrestle with my sins because God deserves the honor in my life today. Another reason why it's urgent is, is because... Uh, because the gospel needs to be heralded because my life needs to be used. Your life needs to be used so that people will know the good news of Jesus Christ. But when we have sin in our lives that we're not confessing and dealing with, then it keeps us from serving, from being a light for the Lord, like he would have us to do. But there's a third reason why, why, why it's urgent it's because sin hardens us. Now look back at verse 13 again. But encourage each other daily while it is called today. Why? So that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. What does it mean that, that we could become hardened? Well, our spiritual hearts can become hardened just, just like our hands can become calloused. And when, when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, Okay, maybe this morning you're thinking about some sin that has been a habitual, persistent sin in your life. Well, that's the conviction of the Lord. And when you, when you are convicted of that sin and you fail to respond to the Lord in the right way, then it's as if you have a blister on your spiritual heart. And then if you do that again and again and again, eventually those blisters turn into calluses and your heart gets hard. Have you noticed that some Christians are very sensitive to sin? They, 
they see things or they hear things and it's, they just recoil because they're sensitive to it. But some Christians can be in the environment of sin and it just doesn't bother them. What's the difference? Well, those latter Christians have, have just been hardened over the years. They've been convicted of sin. They've not responded and it's just hardened their hearts. Why is it urgent that we deal with sin? Because sin will harden our hearts. And and you won't even realize it. You you don't know if your heart is hardened. You don't feel it. Others may be able to see it. But I don't want to get to to, to later parts of my life and be so hardened towards sin that I don't feel the conviction of the Lord, that I don't hear uh, from the the Holy Spirit of the Lord. But, But if we're not urgent about dealing with our sins, then our hearts hearts will grow hard. So we must not be casual towards sin. We we need to have the attitude of the apostle Paul who said, I discipline my body and I bring it under strict control. We need to embrace the commands that we saw early in this series in Romans chapter six, when it said, do not let sin reign. And listen, another reason why we need to take sin seriously is because our attitude towards sin says something about the authenticity of our faith. The Bible teaches that that there are many who believe themselves to be children of God, but who are not children of God. And so one of the common questions that pastors are asked is, how do I know? How do I know if I'm truly a child of God, not just had some religious experience, but that I am a child of God. I've put truly my faith and trust in Jesus, that he has forgiven me and saved me. How do I know? Well, the Bible really gives a number of evidences that you can look for in life. Uh, The chief evidence, the one that's mentioned most often in the New Testament, is just your perseverance. Uh, Those people whose faith is genuine, those people persevere in the faith. Those people whose faith is not genuine, they tend to burn out pretty quickly. And the Bible says that a hundred times, that one of the ways we know our faith is genuine is that it lasts. But the other one that's mentioned almost as many times is this one. Someone who has an authentic faith is someone who is uncomfortable with sin and and who will spend his life wrestling with sin, to overcome sin. If you can have the attitude that my sin doesn't really matter, I know I'm saved, who really cares? If that is your attitude, then that's an indicator that your faith is not genuine. Because someone with a genuine faith will persist, he will persevere, but he will also continue to wrestle and grow. And let me just give you one verse for that, that, we'll, that we've mentioned in this series a couple of times. That's why I've chosen it, and we'll mention it a couple more times in this message. Romans 8, 13. It says, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. What does it mean to live according to the flesh? That means that you live according to the desires of your flesh, that, that, you, uh, that, that you just follow your, your fleshly, sinful heart. But... If by the Spirit, and we'll get to what it means by the Spirit in a moment, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. This verse says that a person who is a genuine believer will be, the person who is going to live will be someone who is working to put to death the deeds of the body. That, that, uh, that, that he is wrestling with his persistent sins. If there's no concern, if there's no wrestling, then 
Romans 8, 13, there's, there's reason to question the authenticity of, of our faith. So when we look at Hebrews 3.13, the first thing we see is that sin is a big, dangerous deal. That, it, uh, that, that we need to deal with it daily, we need to deal with it today, because it will harden us. Now the second thing we learn from this, from this verse is that the Holy Spirit is ready, willing, and able to help you, to help us with persistent sin. Now this is a little more difficult to see here in verse 13, but I, I want you to see that it is there. It says in the beginning of the verse, but encourage each other daily. Now, the original word behind encourage, the Greek word behind encourage, happens to be the same word, or at least the same root word, as the word used in John chapter 14, verse 16, for the Holy Spirit. So let me, let me share that verse with you. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor. Now, counselor in, in John chapter 14 and uh, this uh, encourage, this command to encourage in Hebrews 3.13, they're the same, they have the same root word. And what the original hearers of Hebrews chapter 3 would have recognized that we don't recognize is that when... When there was the command to encourage one another daily, it's encouraged in the same way the Holy Spirit encouraged. They would have thought of the role of the Holy Spirit in their lives. We are to encourage each other just as the Holy Spirit encourages us. So we'll talk about how we encourage in a moment. Let's, let's spend a moment talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, we've, we've talked about the partnership of the Holy Spirit all the way through this, this series, but, but let's, let's review. You will never change, I will never change my life by my own strength, by my own determination, or by my own willpower. You can try, you can make promises, you can have New Year's resolutions, now, you will not change by your willpower. All the dramatic promises, I will never, just don't, just don't work. But that's okay. Because God never intended for you to do this on your own. If you could change yourself, there would be no need for Jesus, right? If you could change yourself, then the glory would go to you. But, but the Bible says, no, that Jesus will be glorified for our changed lives. No, the Holy Spirit of God is God's agent for changing our lives. Now, this is so important and people miss this. I don't change my own life. I don't sanctify, that's the biblical word for change. I don't sanctify my own life, the Holy Spirit. God does that through his Spirit. So let's go back to Romans 8, 13 that we looked at a moment ago. If you live according to the flesh, that means you do this, you change by your own efforts, the flesh. If you do this according to the flesh, you are going to die. You will not change yourself. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. You see, the only way we'll be successful in putting to death the deeds of the body, that is to overcome persistent sin, is by the Spirit. Now let me show you one other verse before we get to the how-tos of this. Galatians 5.16. This is a, such an important verse. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. 
Now, we're going to leave that verse up for a moment because I just want this to sink in. He gives us a command to walk by the Spirit. And then he says, if we'll do that, a certain thing will happen. We will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. And so our persistent sin is carrying out the desires of the flesh. How do we stop persistent sin? How do we overcome persistent sin? Well, we walk by the Spirit. You see, the Spirit has this essential role. You can't do this without the Spirit of God. But if you will walk with the Spirit, then you will, you will overcome your, your, your persistent sins. Now, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, that, that means that this doesn't happen automatically. The Holy Spirit wants to be depended upon. So how do we walk by the Spirit? Well, as we've already seen, Romans 6.13, Romans 6.19, as we've learned in the last few weeks, we engage in these God-prescribed, Holy Spirit-empowered habits or spiritual disciplines. And when we engage in these things, that is what it means to walk by the Spirit. When I, for instance, meditate on God's Word, the Bible says that's walking by the Spirit. And the Spirit will use that as a weapon against sin in my life, and He'll change me. If I pray, and I journal when I pray so that my praying is, is serious and focused praying, the Bible says that God will use those, those prayers as, as weapons of righteousness, Romans six thirteen, to change me. If I fast regularly, the Bible says specifically, God will use, uh, the Spirit will use my fasting as a weapon of righteousness to change me. And so when it says in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit, that's what it's talking about. These God-prescribed, Holy Spirit-empowered habits, and when we engage in those things, we're walking by the Spirit. And then the Spirit will change us. It's not crying a bunch of tears and saying, oh, I will never, ever do that again. I promise, I promise. No, it is, that's about your strength. And it'll take you as far as your strength will take you, which is not very far. But if you will engage in these habits, the Holy Spirit will bring the change that we desire. So we see that sin is a big deal. We're reminded of that in Hebrews 3.13, there's an allusion here to the Spirit, and, and, and we needed to pause and remind you of that. But then there's one final piece that I want you to see. And we've been sort of pushing toward this through the whole series, but the final piece is this. The other half of the requisite encouragement comes from the church. Now, the first two points that I've shared, no surprise to anybody, right? If you've been in church very long, uh, you know that sin's a big deal. That's the testimony of Scripture. You know, even if you haven't understood exactly how the Holy Spirit works or what it means to walk in the Spirit, you know that God changes us through His Spirit. But here's the part that we don't know, or maybe we know it. I, I know we've been taught these things and we've read these things, but, but here's the part that I just don't think comes together in our minds. God wants to change us by using the Christians around us. And there is a certain level of change. There is a certain level of sanctification that will not happen without good Christian connections with other people. You know, the Lord could have made our faith a private matter. He could have just made it a vertical thing. 
And I'm afraid that's how most people think about faith anyway, that it's just a personal decision between me and the Lord, that don't, don't question my faith, don't judge me, don't have anything to say to me because I trust God in my way and that's a private thing and a personal thing. Listen, I suppose in a way it is private and personal and it's personal in the sense that you as an individual have to put your faith and trust in Christ but if you just look at faith as it is described in the New Testament, it is not described as some private matter. Faith is always described as a team sport. It is always described as, as certainly a relationship between you and the Father through Jesus, but at the same time, a relationship between you and other people who have a relationship with God. This solo sport Christianity, this American version of the faith that just makes it a private personal thing is just not, just not biblical. The Christian faith is inescapably bound up in our connections with other people. That's why the Bible talks so much about the church. That's why, not just so that we'll have an organization to pay for a building, not just so that there would be a, a place to teach your children vacation Bible school lessons. No, the church is actually a part of sanctifying believers. That's why Jesus describes the church as the body of Christ, always emphasizing the connections. It's not just an assembly place. It's not just a building. It's not just a club. It's a, it's a connection with other people. That's why most of the commands in the New Testament, or at least the majority of the commands in the New Testament, sound like this. Do this for one another, or do this to one another. Admonish one another, love one another, encourage one another. One another, one another, one another. You can't do most of what the New Testament says to do unless there is a one another. All the way through, the New Testament presents the Christian faith as something you do with other people. So when we struggle with sin, and I know we're very private about our sin. I'm not going to stand up here and list out all of my sins for the last week. You wouldn't want to hear it. I wouldn't want to share it. Uh, you'd be scared. I would call on you next you know, to come and share yours. So when we have these sins, they're private, they're personal, and we want to overcome those sins is the way to do this, to keep this a private and personal matter with us and the Lord, or is there something different that needs to happen? Well, the, the Bible tells us, and the New Testament tells us unequivocally that there's something else that needs, needs to happen. Now, let's look back at verse 13. What does it say? Now, we know the verse is talking about what? What's the subject of the verse? He's talking about sin. He's talking about persistent sin. He's talking about being hardened by sin. He's not just talking about an occasional sin where somebody does something scandalous. No, he's talking about this persistent sin that exists in the lives of most believers, or all believers. And, and so, with that subject in mind, what does he say? Encourage each other daily. Encourage each other. He says that there's some role that you have in the, in the life of, in, in, in the sins of the person sitting next to you, and there's some role they have in your sins, they need your encouragement, you need their encouragement. Why? So that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. What does this tell us is the, is the best remedy to keep from being deceived by sin? Having somebody encourage you. 
Now, somebody can't encourage you unless they know you. They can't encourage you unless you've given them permission to speak into your life. They can't encourage you unless perhaps they know even what your sins are or the things that you struggle with most. But the key to not being hardened by sin's deception is that other people would encourage you about those sins, about that obedience. And there are people around you, and they're struggling with persistent sins, and a part of their hope, if they're ever going to make progress, is you. You play an essential role with them, and they play an essential role with you. Now, you might say, well, Pastor, you've just picked some verse out of the middle of the Bible, and that's, that's, that's just a verse. That's not what the Bible, the New Testament, teaches. Well, you would be wrong. Let me share with you some other verses. I'm going to share three passages here. If you look at the outline I'll put online, there are many more than this. But time only allows me to share three. Hebrews 10, this is also in Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us watch out for one another to provoke Uh, Love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. He he says that, that we need to come together because we have a role in the spiritual maturity of the people around us. Listen to this, Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, that means they're guilty of a sin. They're overtaking in any wrongdoing. You who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. He says when people are guilty of sin, that there is a role for other Christians to come alongside them and help them overcome that sin. And then James 5.16, therefore, confess your sins. Who do we confess our sins to? Well, we first think, well, we confess our sins to the Lord, and we should. But listen to this. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. He says you should tell other people the sins that you struggle with so that they can pray for you because there is something that will only happen in your life through the prayers of other Christians who know about your sin. You know, we often quote, Christians often quote that last part of that. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful in its effect. That's a common, that's a common phrase to quote in churches. But oftentimes when people quote that, they don't recognize it's not talking about praying for a new job. It's not talking about praying for healing for cancer. It's not praying for God to restore marriage. It's talking about praying with someone who has shared his sins with you that God might work in their lives to help them overcome that sin. That's the context of that. So the Bible says, and I could give you uh, many, many more verses, but the Bible says that if we're going to overcome persistent sin, sure, we've got to embrace the fact we're dead to sin. We have to engage in these spiritual disciplines so that the Holy Spirit can make changes in our lives, but we have to to be in connection with other Christians. There is just something you're missing out on in the Christian life. There's just a sanctification that's not happening if there's not some people in your life, Christian brothers and sisters, who know you and are encouraging you and are challenging you and are praying for you, then you're just missing out. So let me tell you practically how to do that. How do we encourage each other daily, as it says in Hebrews 3.13? 
Well, first of all, we must be in worship Sunday school and have a place of service. So I, I'm talking to the choir, so to, so to speak. Uh, you, you need to be here. So the relationships that God wants to use to bring sanctification in your life, to protect your marriage, to protect your children, to protect your walk, the relationships that he wants to use to do that will be formed right here. They will be formed with people right here. Now, I'm not saying that after the, after the service is over, you need to run up to somebody and start confessing your sins. But I'm saying you need to get to know the people around you. And you won't get to know the people around you if they're not around you. If you're not here, then those, then, then, then those relationships won't happen. Those connections won't happen. This space, this environment, this hour on Sunday morning, uh, Sunday school that, that many or most or hopefully all of you will go to in a few minutes, that is so critical because it is the... It, it is the ground on which God begins to form these relationships that are essential for our sanctification. Uh, so you need to be in worship every, every week for your sanctification. You need to be in Sunday school, a small group every week. You need to find a place to serve. You know, you know, one of the best ways to get to know other believers in the church is just to serve, is to work in the youth department, is to sing in the choir, is to work with the children, is to work with the backpack ministry. I mean, we have a thousand things you can do here. And, and, and the best way to get connected with other people is to roll up your sleeves and work with them. So it starts there. How do we connect with other people for our sanctification? Be here. Letter B. We need to have partners in our Christian walk. We need to be sitting around every week, I believe, and discussing with somebody our Bible study for the week. We need to be talking about our prayer burdens. We need to be confessing our weaknesses. Now, whether that's some formal group or, or, or just a, uh, somebody you have coffee with uh, occasionally, there, there need to be some people that know what's going on in your life. I can tell you that there's at least three men in our church uh, that I meet with every week and I tell them what I'm struggling with and they tell me what they're struggling with and I tell them what I read in the scripture last week and what I learned and what I didn't understand and they tell me what they read and it's not a Bible study, I'm not the teacher, I'm not even the leader, it's just a group of four guys that get together and that is invaluable for my sanctification. Now, if, if we're really gonna change, we have to have those, those connections. And then let her see, we need to be investing in the lives of a few people. You know, our church is filled with seasoned Christians. You, you know what I mean. I'm, it's the nice way of saying something else. But, but, but we, have, we have a number of seasoned Christians. You've been a Christian for a long time. So, some of you have been a Christian for so long it's made your hair fall out, okay? So we have a lot of seasoned Christians in our church. So listen to me, seasoned Christians. Maybe the reason God has left you here is so that you would invest in the lives of younger people. In fact, the Bible says, ladies, that, that the older ladies in the church ought to be meeting regularly with the younger ladies in the church to, to help them understand how to be moms and wives and, and to lead a godly life. Men, that's it's true of you as well. You, you ought to find a person or two people or 10 people and, and you ought to be investing in them. You, you, you need to be vulnerable with them. You need to be telling them about, about your struggles. You need to talk about your Bible reading and, and your prayer life and give them an opportunity to do that with you. 
And that's how sanctification happens. When we see, let me talk to the old folks a minute, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you now. So, so when we say, so if you're 50 or older, Andre told us a few weeks ago we were old when we did our multi-generational service. So, so if you're 50 and older, listen to me. Uh, we're old folks. And we often complain as old folks about the sins of the young folks, Right? Young people don't know this, but when we old people get together, we talk about you. We talk about how sinful you are. Listen, old folks, it's up to us not to sit around with other old folks and talk about the sin of the young folks, but to sit down with the young folks and share the journeys and the lessons that we've learned as we became old folks. And that's not just a nice thing to do. That is part of God's plan for sanctification. We ought to see the sin, old folks, we ought to see the sins of the young folks as our responsibility in some way. How many of those people are we investing in so that they might be sanctified? Because that's one of the primary tools God's going to use to change their lives. Without, we will not know the fullness of what the Lord wants to change, mature, and sanctify in our lives as long as we're treating our faith like a solo sport. It's interesting, Paul said in 1 Corinthians that there are some Christians who are carnal, they're fleshly. He says in 2 Corinthians that some Christians have a stronghold of sin in their lives. It's just some kernel of sin that they've struggled with for so long. But Paul also said that we can have the character of Christ formed in us by the power of God and through the agency of the Holy Spirit. If we'll embrace that we're dead to sin, if we will engage in these spiritual habits and we'll connect with other people on a level that they will feel comfortable encouraging us and praying for us with our sins. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, of course it begins there, as we talked about in, in baptism this morning. And you can put your faith and trust in Jesus, and God will forgive you and save you, and the journey will begin. So I invite you to do that this morning. If you don't know what that means or how to do that, as, the, as we sing in a moment, you can step forward and somebody here at the front will meet you and privately talk to you about how today you can become a child of God. But you know, many of us today, we are children of God. We know that. But we're also people who struggle often with the seven deadly sins. And maybe we have eight or 10 or 12. But we're tired of it and we want to change we're tired of promising to change. We're tired of trying harder and it not making a difference. We're ready to embrace today that we're dead to sin because of the work of Christ, that the Holy Spirit will change us if we'll do these habits and if we'll connect with people around us. Will you take seriously the struggle of sin in our lives and let's see God make real changes in who we are. Father, thank you that you have made a way and that the Holy Spirit is ready, willing, and able to change us if we'll lean upon him. Help us to do that today. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.